0: Uh, last week we began our sermon series on the kingdom of God through the month of May, and we began with—is that devil. We began with more of a Bible study and trying to answer the question, you know, what what is the kingdom of God? Uh, because as you read the Gospels, it seems that everyone seemed to understand what Jesus was talking about—this idea that God's kingdom was here and coming. Because nobody asked Jesus what he meant when he says that. When you read the Gospels. So to answer our question, we had to do some digging in a Bible study. We saw how God defines his own kingdom and the way he describes earthly powers. We see the parallels. Because all kingdoms, to some degree or another, they will parallel God's kingdom and their purpose to bring order to the chaos. You know, all kingdoms include things like power, people, and a place. The king has power, the king has a people, and the king has a place where he reigns from and a place for his people to dwell in safety. The big difference, though, is that all human governments fail at this miserably. They do. And only God's kingdom has this, these things perfectly. And God's kingdom is the only kingdom that will last forever. For the kingdom of God will eventually destroy the kingdom of darkness and all earthly powers. And only righteousness will remain. This is our Christian hope. Today, though, we will begin to ask the question, not what is the kingdom of God, but now we want to ask, what is it like? What is the kingdom of God actually like? How are we supposed to live as citizens of this eternal kingdom? What is important to know about the kingdom other than its definition? We're going to ask those types of questions this month. And so, after thinking about it, how will we approach that? You could study the kingdom of God in a multitude of ways, but... uh, I settled, and when I was praying about this, we're going to be exploring the parables for the rest of this month, the parables that Jesus told concerning the kingdom. And today's parable is the first parable that Jesus taught in public. It is the reading is from Matthew 13, Matthew chapter 13, verse 1 through 23. Uh, "If you can and you are willing, please stand for the word of the living and true God." Matthew 13 verses 1 through 23. The word of the living God says this. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Then the disciples came to him and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you, you disciples, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. This is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we read your word out loud publicly. And Holy Spirit, if you don't show up and do something today, we will be just like these crowds. We will hear without hearing and we will not really understand, so you need to give us ears to hear, a heart to understand, a desire for the truth. Do this for the glory of your Son. We ask this in his namesake. sake. Amen. A little context for our reading this morning. Our text begins with the wording, that same day, and it shows us that this is connected to the previous text in the previous chapter. Earlier in that same day, in Matthew 12, Jesus was confronted by the Pharisees, and they condemned his ministry and his miracles. They claimed that they were not divine, but demonic in origin and operation. They saw the healings, and they saw Jesus forgiving people for their sins, and they said it was from hell itself. It is by the prince of demons that you, Jesus, do what you do. It is by Satan himself that you do what you do, you blasphemer. They were looking at this God-man, and they're calling him Satan. And what we are reading this morning is Jesus' reaction to their claims, because Matthew 12 and Matthew 13, they're a turning point in the gospel story. This is the pivotal moment where Jesus goes from open public teaching, like the Sermon on the Mount, where he gets up on the mountain and proclaims, the kingdom of God belongs to those who are poor in spirit. He goes from things like that, open teaching, to parables, short stories that represent the truth. And this, as you can be read, this surprises the disciples. And they ask him, like, why are you doing this, Jesus? Why are you talking to the crowds in parables? That's, that's not how you just did it yesterday. And he answered them in verse 11. He goes, to you, to you, my disciples, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Matthew's gospel uses kingdom of heaven, but they're practically synonymous for our purposes. He says, to you it's known the secrets of the kingdom. But to them, those who are not my followers, the crowds, the Pharisees, it has not been given. And in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive, for this people's heart has grown dull. In summary, the parables, church, they're an act of God's judgment. Because the people's hearts had grown hard towards God, as characterized by the Pharisees, calling Jesus' work miracles, teaching, demonic. And the crowd and all them being lumped together, it's like they crossed a line. This is a big deal. When they look at Jesus and say, you know what? You're Satan himself. You're demonic. This is evil, what you're doing. They crossed a line and entered into the judgment of God. So when you think about the parables, they're not these cute stories to make it easier to understand the Bible. They're not cute stories that are supposed to bring great illustrative purposes. The parables are not like that. According to Jesus, parables are an act of judgment. They obscure the truth to leave people in darkness, to leave people without answers. And ima- I would say, seriously, imagine if you came to church next week and whoever was preaching for the Me, me gets up and say something like this, heaven is like a young boy that saw a turtle on his back and he walked away desiring soup. Thank you. God bless you. I'll see you next week. That would be weird, right? You'd walk away and be like, either that was brilliant or he's crazy or I don't know what's going on. I have no idea what just happened. That would be like that is that, that would be that situation. They get up and he says these things, and you can say, okay, a turtle, what does the turtle represent? Like, you would not know unless I told you what I meant by that, which, if anyone ever copies that or makes a poetry or whatever, I want, like, a nickel or trademark on that. That's genius. Save that one. But parables without explanation, they leave us, they leave people in darkness, which, as we just read was God's act and plan of judgment for those who are not disciples, those who are not followers of Jesus. But thankfully to the disciples, those who follow Jesus, Christians, he explains their meaning. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, it's a parallel passage on this same event, says this, that with many such parables he spoke the word to the crowds as much as they were able to hear it. Jesus did not speak to the crowds without a parable, But privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. And that is what we're going to be focusing on today, the explanation of the parable of the sower. And which brings us and gives us our main point for this morning. The meaning of the parable of the sower is this. The kingdom of God is inhabited by those who bear fruit. The kingdom of God is inhabited by those who bear fruit. Fruit. Let's reread verses 18 to 23, and then we're going to dissect Jesus' explanation of the parable of the sower. Jesus says, His explanation, He goes, Hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in one case 60, and another in 30. Church, this parable has four types of ground that are being described, and each one represents a different kind of person and their reaction to when they hear the message of the king and the kingdom. Jesus tells us that the seed on the path, a person, that's the type of person that they'll hear about the kingdom of God, but they will lack understanding. The kingdom doesn't take root in their hearts. And when it doesn't, the evil one comes and snatches away the little that they had. They are no better off, and they walk away unchanged. And then there are those who hear the word. They they receive it. But when being a follower of Jesus is too costly, they turn away from their supposed king. Persecution and hardship can reveal the heart quickly. Or if following Jesus may cost you your reputation, it's easy to abandon him when no longer you have the favor of men in your life, when no longer you have the favor of the people, it could cost you your reputation or your position. People quickly will jump ship, get off the Jesus train fast when it realizes it actually will cost them to be a disciple. Many in the gospel stories do this to Jesus. These are the rocky soil. Thirdly, there are those who hear, but the idols of greed or control or anxiety, or busyness, or distraction keep them from actually living the Christian life. They like a sprinkle of Jesus on their lives. They like a little bit of that Jesus religion, you know, fire insurance or whatever you want to call that. They don't want to go to hell, but they don't really want Jesus to be in charge. Usually a love of money, fear of not having, things like that stop them from living the Christian life. They don't really want Jesus to be their God, King, and Master, There are many in the church, I believe, who fit this description today. This is the thorny soil. And what is important to grasp here is that all of these, these first three, they're negative examples and categories. We do not want to sympathize with any of these as valid or true expressions of the kingdom of God and the Christian life. I once even heard a very silly debate between two college students. I overheard it. And they were debating the possibility of the salvation of the person on the thorny soil on the rocky ground. This, catching this debate, they're like, well, you know, the seed actually took root because it grew, so they must have actually really been saved and all that stuff. And I'm just thinking, guys, you're missing the point of the parable. Each soil listed so far represents a failure for the kingdom of God to take root and do what it's supposed to do, which is to bear fruit. And that's why the last soil explained, the good soil, is the only right soil to be. It's the only valid soil to be. It's the only true expression of the kingdom of God. It's the right type of person to be. And that's the main point of the parable. The kingdom of God is inhabited by those who bear its fruit. And bearing fruit, according to the good soil, begins with understanding, which is our first preaching point this morning. Bearing fruit begins with understanding. So in the three bad soils, as we read, all of them hear the message of the kingdom, just like you all this morning. You all are hearing the same thing, but understanding for the bad soil, the path soil, it says, these things, they, they never get understanding, and it's never mentioned, except for the seed on the path, the wayside, and the seed on the good soil. Jesus said the people on the path, specifically, he says, are those who hear the kingdom, but do not understand it. And in contrast, only the good soil are those who hear the word and understand it. Understanding the kingdom, the king, this Jesus guy, what he's about, it's essential to bearing real, lasting, spiritual fruit. For true understanding is what separates a person from all the other categories, all the other types of soils. And it's precisely the point of why Jesus is now teaching the crowds in parables. Because the parables, the word, separates those because no understanding or no explanation is given except to those who want to know. The parables separate those who do want to know and what Jesus meant from those who simply like hearing a person talk about spiritual things. Because many people like talking about spiritual things. King Herod, for instance, the guy that had John the Baptist killed, the guy that had John the Baptist beheaded, he liked, it says in the Scripture, talking with John the Baptist about spiritual things for whatever reason. It's perplexing to me. But Mark chapter 6 says that Herod would hear John gladly, but he didn't understand him. Which is, again, that's weird. Why would he do that? This is the guy that was accusing him for his evil crimes, and then he had him in jail. And he was, you know, he, just, he would hear him, though. He would hear him out. But it seemed that whatever John was actually discussing with Herod, It didn't take root because Herod, when push came to shove, had no problem having John the Baptist beheaded. Herod lacked true understanding of the things John was talking to him about, which was repentance, trusting in the one to come after him, this Jesus. And this is the same situation the crowds following Jesus are in. The ones he's telling the parable to are in this category as in anyone who then doesn't come to Jesus and ask him for explanation. They may hear, but they never seek the meaning or the truth because they're not actually seeking Jesus after the fact. They walk away and go, wow, Jesus, that was a nice sermon. That was a nice parable, Jesus. Uh, very much. Thank you for that. It was quite good. Um, I'll see you next Sabbath day. I'll see you next Sunday so you can tickle my ears again next week. Uh, and, maybe, and maybe, Jesus, I'll take you out to lunch. You know, preacher, I'll take you out to lunch. If you really entertain me, Jesus, I'll, I'll take you out to lunch. I'll take you to the best Mexican restaurant in all of Overbrook. Um, thank you very much Jesus I'll see you next week it'll be great we'll see you then you know it's this heart attitude of not really wanting understanding is what makes it wholly opposite from the good soil those who hear and understand and you can only understand when you want to have understanding no one can do this for you this is why Scripture as a whole, especially things like Proverbs, make this thing called understanding such a big deal in the Bible. Proverbs 2.3 says this, If you incline your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight, if you raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver, if you search for it as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and you will find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding there's great encouragement and promise in that that if you seek these things out god's going to show them to you and this is just really describing doing the hard work of picking up your bible and just reading it and prayerfully studying it since jesus is not physically here for us to ask him like hey what does this parable mean we turn to what he's given us the church the word of god the scriptures the whole story we have it the bible and so our goal then is to really engage Jesus through the Scriptures. This is how we gain understanding. This is what the Apostle Peter means when he says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And guys, as a pastor, it greatly troubles me when I ask some of you about your Bible reading habits, when I see you Sunday to Sunday and I say, hey, what would you read in the Word this week? And the answer week after week, month after month is the same. I didn't. I worry for you. I greatly worry for you. And this is normal for some of you. you. You don't read the Bible at all. You just don't do it. I worry for you because you're acting like the crowds that didn't seek Jesus and ask him to explain himself. You're not engaging him. You're not engaging the word of God. You're not picking up the great final revelation God has given us and says, you can know me. Your lack. lacking of desire for the Bible and to pick it up and to know it and read it should trouble you as well. And therefore, for the sake of bearing fruit and proving that you're a citizen of the kingdom of God, that you are the good soil, love the Bible. Love it. Seek understanding as you would treasure, as we just read in Proverbs, Think about it. If I said I'd pay you, if I was Elon Musk or one of those guys with a bajillion dollars and I said, hey, I'm going to pay you 10 grand a week to read the Bible, how many of you would read the Bible every week then? All of us because 10 grand's a lot of cash. If we can do it for the gold that will perish, why can't we do it for the fruit that'll last for eternity? Why is reading the Bible such a hard thing for God's people? And this is not to make people feel bad. It's because when you don't engage the word, you're not getting understanding. And when you're not gaining understanding, you will never bear fruit for the kingdom. And the kingdom is only habited by those who bear fruit. It's a dangerous place to be when you will not engage the word of God. And you've got to know this, guys. You're not alone. You have elders and pastors and Sunday school teachers and other Christians to help you learn and grow. We have the Internet. We have more books written now about the Bible than any time in history. And there's a good chance, I would even bet, other than children, 100% of you can read. We don't live in the Middle Ages where you had to rely on the one guy. I'm not saying God doesn't put pastors and teachers to you know, do what we do to help the whole church. But think of how great of an era we live in where almost everybody can read the Bible. And everybody can participate. That is good. So it's not like It's not that you don't have the resources available to you. It's just that you don't have a willing heart. And my prayer for you today is that you would repent. And that you would seek understanding so that you also can bear fruit for God's glory and God's kingdom. Because without understanding, without engaging the word of God, you reveal your heart. You don't really care about Jesus' kingdom and what he's called you to do. When people don't engage the Bible, they really reveal that they just don't care about this thing called the kingdom of God. They don't really care about their Savior. I don't. There's no nice way to put it. And now up until this point, we've talked about bearing fruit, how it's central to the kingdom life, but we haven't really answered the question, you know, what is this spiritual fruit Jesus is talking about? We know it's good, We know we're supposed to be about it, and we know it requires understanding, but what does bearing fruit actually mean? How does the Bible portray this idea of fruitfulness? So the next two preaching points, we're going to cover this. For if bearing fruit is a characteristic of those who inhabit the kingdom of God, we really need to know what it means to bear fruit. We know we need to, but we really want to talk about what it is. How does the Bible describe these? And I propose to you there are two general ways to understand spiritual fruit, fruit of the kingdom, fruit of the Christian life. The first is the fruit of repentance, which is then followed by the fruit of righteousness. We will begin with the former, our second preaching point, the fruit of repentance. So in the beginning of the Gospels, the Pharisees, the ones that we just read that called Jesus' ministry and miracles demonic, these guys come to John the Baptist in the beginning of the Gospel. Listen to how John talks to these guys, the religious experts, when they come to him. Matthew 3, verses 7 through 10. It's not going to be on the screen. But just, you can hear, you can hear clearly God's pain and his frustration with these religious professionals through John the Baptist. It says this, But when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He says, There's no there's no claiming pedigree here. You just can't say that you're Jewish and a part of the people of God. He goes, no, that's not okay. Repent. Keep fruit in line with repentance. And he makes it clear to him. He goes, if you don't do this, if you don't bear fruits of repentance, you will be destroyed. Meaning that true fruitfulness is rooted and begins in repentance. And repentance comes in two parts. One Repentance is to recognize sin for what it is. And two, it's then turning away from those very things that are sin to stop evil attitudes and actions and heart desires. And sin is disobedience to God's holy law and is characterized famously by what, by what the Apostle Paul calls the works of the flesh. Flesh being the opposite of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5, 19-21. Most of you heard this. Most of you have read this. Super famous. He explains to us what these things called the works of the flesh, the sin that's in our lives looks like. He goes, Galatians 5, 19 through 21, Paul says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, meaning it's very clear that these things are wrong, evil, bad, and opposite of the Holy Spirit. They violate God's law. But just in case you don't know, he lists them. And this happens multiple times in the Bible. These sin lists will come up. He says this, First off, he puts, and I think there actually is reason why these are in order, not saying one is worse than another, but maybe it could be more because they're prevalent. Speculation. But he says, first off, sexual morality. That's the first on his list sexual morality. Maybe things like pornography. We know plagues, plagues our nation, plagues the church still. When they do those secret surveys, they know tons of people watch pornography in secret. It's awful. It destroys the mind and heart, makes marriage very ugly and difficult. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, even with sorcery. I don't think many of us sit around and think about the sins of sorcery, but let's put it in our today's terms, since most of us don't use that term magic or sorcery, but it's a very real sin. So maybe things like this. Maybe you've heard of like palm reading, visiting a psychic, tarot card readings, uh, astrology, having your star charts read, stuff like that. That's what that is. That's sorcery. That's biblical understanding of magic. Or trying to talk to like your dead relatives when you go visit a psychic medium. Stuff like that. That's that. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, enviness, or envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul is warning Christians that if that's you, you need to do a heart check if that's your life. And to really drive the point home, in a different book, the apostle asks his readers this bluntly. He says, What fruit were you getting at that time from the things which you are now ashamed of? For the end of those things... Is death. Basically, he's saying, what benefit did sinning against God's holy law, what benefit did that ever bring you except to kill you? Sinning against God never did anything for you. So why are you keeping on in it? That's the Christian message. You've been set free to serve the one true living God and be a part of his kingdom. This can't be in our lives. That's the gospel truth. You've been set free. And he says all this because sin is a direct contradiction to the fruit that you and I are to bear as citizens of the kingdom of God for being Christian. Therefore, if we truly are fruit bearers, we will be continually repenting by recognizing our sin. Which, by the way, the more you read the word of God and gain understanding, the more you will see the sin in your life that you need to repent of. And so we'll recognize it more and then we'll turn away from it more and more all of our days. That is the beauty of the Christian life. God takes you from where you're at and through his holy word builds you up to be more and more and more like his son. Because we know it was our very sin that crucified the Lord of glory. And he did that to set us free to serve him and him alone for his glory and his namesake. As the scripture says, you were bought with a price. Glorify God in your bodies. What you do with your attitudes, your body, your mind, all that, it matters. It matters, church. And we have been called to bear the fruits of righteousness, not to bear the fruit of sin and death. God has a better hope for you, a better promise for you, something that's lasting and good and precious. And that leads us to our last preaching point today, the second way we bear fruit. The fruit of righteousness. What we're supposed to be about. What this parable is about. Those who inhabit the kingdom do. Back to our sermon text. Jesus said that those who are the good soil. Those who hear and understand the kingdom. The king. The gospel. The message. All this Christian-y stuff. Those who receive it. And want to understand what this is all about. It says, indeed, they will bear fruit. And they'll yield, in some cases, a hundredfold. Some a sixty-fold. Some 30-fold, this idea of multiplication, of growth. its not And this idea of mul- bearing fruit and multiplication, it's not new to Jesus. It's, it's throughout the entire Bible. Psalm 1 famously says, "Like those who love and meditate upon God's word will be like this vibrant fruit tree that's well-watered and will produce its fruit in season, like a good and healthy fruit tree is to do. But what is unique is that this message of fruit-bearing takes a central place in the Gospels in the New Testament. It's all over the place, you guys. For example, we went through our um, Gospel of John series, that famous Jesus phrase that says, I am the vine, you are the branches. That's this stuff. Meaning that Jesus is the one that we have to be plugged into as branches to actually bear true fruit. Because the only way you and I can bear fruit is not in our own power, but in the power of the living God. Without the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we're, we're useless branches. We need God's help. Hence, bearing fruit is an act of God's grace and mercy for his glory. And that is why the Apostle Paul, after talking about the works of the flesh, he then moves on and says, this is what you should not be about. This is what you used to be. But this is what God wants to work in you. This is the fruits of the righteous. This is something that the Holy Spirit's going to do in you. So Galatians 5, through 24, he says this. In contrast to the works of the flesh, the Holy Spirit produces these virtues in us, called the fruit of the Spirit. He says, "But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control." And those who have been, those who are with Jesus. They've crucified the flesh and its passions. This is the fruit; these virtues; these heart and mind attitudes that the Lord of Glory, Jesus, is desiring. To produce in you and in me, and he 's making us into a people who will be filled with godly love, godly patience, godly endurance, those God is making us into that, and these virtues church they're to actually make a difference in how we live they 're not supposed to be this hidden heart attitude. Have you ever heard someone say, and I say this, maybe as kind as i can um, some kid, maybe a teenager, will be like in really bad sin, doing these awful things, and then usually a mom will say, But you know, deep down, you know, deep down they're really they're actually a good kid. That is not true biblically whatsoever. In fact, the Bible says what's in the heart eventually comes out. And so therefore, if we're gonna have this fruit of the Spirit, this godly virtue he's growing in us, they actually need to impact the way we live and breathe and have our being. They can't just be hidden deep down somewhere. They manifest or appear in your life. And affect everything you do. They're not a hidden heart quality. They impact how you and I conduct ourselves in this fallen and broken world. And this is what the scripture means when it says we're to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. These Christian virtues, this fruit of the spirit is actually supposed to be put to action. So in summary, fruit of the righteousness The fruits of righteousness are spiritual fruit, virtues put into action, into every good work, how you live. And you and I are to produce this all of our days. It's not a one and done deal. Just as the healthy fruit tree will bear fruit season after season, you and I are supposed to be like that. That's how we're supposed to have our being. Fruit bearing should be our normal Christian life. Not just this thing that happened when you got saved. It's how you live in totality. And now, as we think about these things, we've talked about fruit bearing, the importance of it, kind of what it looks like, but now we're going to ask, because it's almost lunchtime. I know people are getting antsy. We're going to go over this, but how we actually participate in these things, how we actually bear fruit. Some of them are the ideas that came to me this week. One, uh, bearing fruit, it just has to begin with a love for God. It's the greatest commandment. The greatest commandment in the Bible, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, body, strength. Every fiber of your being, every cell of your body, every desire of your heart, every thought in your head needs to be rooted and grounded in love for our great God and King Jesus. It has to be that. It's the great commandment. Everything else, if that's not there in your life, nothing else matters. Love is the great motivation. And we love Jesus Not because of something we have in ourselves, but we love him because he first loved us and gave himself up for us as an atoning sacrifice. We only love God because he bridged that gap between you and himself. He came upon you and revealed his love through the gospel. So if we love God then and we've received that gospel, we'll want to bear fruit. You will have that desire to bear fruit. You'll have that desire to repent. You'll have that desire to grow in virtue. You'll have that desire to put it into action and all the things that come out of it. Love for God is the key, it's the core. Secondly, spiritual fruit, whether of repentance or righteousness, is facilitated by what we call spiritual disciplines. From Bible study to prayer and meditation to fasting, things like that, spiritual disciplines are the biblical practices. That God has given the church to grow in faith and fruitfulness. So not everything we do is a spiritual discipline, no matter how much someone says, like, oh, I don't go to church, I just I just garden and that's how I have time with God. I'm like, well, that's not spiritual discipline. That's just you gardening or CrossFit or working out is what you know gets me close to Jesus. I'm like, ah, well, that might make you feel good and relaxing, but that's not a spiritual discipline. That's just you getting healthy and feeling good. Now, these things are not spiritual disciplines because they're not in the Bible as a means to growing in godliness. They might be relaxing, but they're not actually how you grow closer to our Lord. And we also have the spiritual discipline of corporate worship, what we're doing this morning, this thing called church, what we're doing right now. It's our time of fellowship, encouragement, learning as we participate in song, sacrament, and sermon. All these things put together, God has given us to grow in fruitfulness and love for him. Think about our songs this morning. We sang to the glory of the Lord. The sacrament, we actually partook and engaged the Lord Jesus in that moment. Remembering what he did for us, being encouraged by his death, our own resurrection, that we really are forgiven. That builds up the soul for when you come across the pains in life and you fail God, you can say, but I know that I know. I'm in Christ. And the sermon evidently builds us up because it's supposed to be telling us the truth, how to live. Like God gave us these things. It's not supposed to be a mystery. Practicing spiritual disciplines, if you want to think of it like this way, Bible reading, prayer, fasting, things like that, it's like clearing the rocks from the soil and pulling up the thorns and shooing away the birds. Practicing spiritual disciplines and participating in the life of the church are the way you become the good soil. It's the means God has given for spiritual health. Similar to how when God put Adam in the garden be a caretaker of it, you are to take care of the soil and garden of your heart through these means that God has clearly given us. So therefore, to bear fruit, we must practice spiritual disciplines, which in the name implies it takes discipline, like reading your Bible. It takes discipline. You sometimes have to make yourself read the Bible, which sounds weird, but it's true. It takes work sometimes. And lastly, Spiritual fruit often comes through trials and hardships. God tells us that he will use the pains and the hardships of life to produce the fruit of righteousness in us. It's not pleasant. It's not fun. But our good God knows what you and I need to be more fruitful. And trials are one of those things you just can't do. You can't wake up and be like, today I want to go into a trial. You know, that, that's not real. They happen to you whether you cause it or it just it happens to you. But what's important to know about trials is that they will reveal your heart and what you think about God and the kingdom. Because our God is good at stress testing us to know what our weaknesses are. So think about it. Have you ever gone to the doctor for like a heart test and they get you on the treadmill and they try to see how fast you can go before your heart starts getting out of whack? Trials do that to us. It shows us like what you can tolerate to that point. And God is like, see, this is going to break you This is where we need to grow. It's to be a diagnosis to reveal to you areas in your life that you need to pray about. Trials do that for us, even though they're painful. But if God could do it any other way, he would. You and I learn primarily through pain and hardship. That's just what the Bible says. And that is why the Apostle James... He says, Count it with all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Therefore, church, don't begrudge the pains and the hardships of life, but see them as we just read that description. This is God's way to grow you. You may not see it in the moment. But as many Christians before you and many Christians after you, when you go through the step of life and you can look back, you can be like, man, God was at work. Because that's the way our God works, even when it's painful. And he's with you through it the whole time. And our temporary suffering, it pales in comparison to the rewards of righteousness that await us in glory when the kingdom of God fully comes. So as we come to a close this morning... Thinking about the four different types of soil, the path or the wayside, the rocky ground, the thorny soil, the good soil. Which, which best describes you today? Which best describes you? And be honest with yourself. God is present. God knows. Is the fruit in your life good? As Jesus said, a tree is known by its fruit. A tree, a good tree can't produce bad fruit and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. So during this time of invitation, whether you come to the altar, sit in your seats, if you really care about the kingdom of God, if you really care about being fruitful and then being a part of this kingdom, spend this time asking Jesus to search your heart. And don't miss that time to respond back because he's going to be poking you through the spirit. He's going to be like, hey, this is an area we really need to address. If we already took communion. I want you to be settled in the fact that no, you are forgiven. But there are still areas we can always grow. So don't leave here condemned. Leave here encouraged that God spoke to you. And he's going to keep carrying you through this life because we can't, we can't do this on our own, church. We need God's help to be fruitful. Don't leave condemned. Do some good business with God at the altar, whether in your chair or at the pier. Leave here in great confidence And commit, say, God, do what you have to do to make me fruitful for your kingdom and your glory. That's the right attitude we want. Be the good soil. I'm going to pray. Time will be open. Father God, we come before you. A lot of things were said today, but the message is clear. The kingdom of God is only inhabited by those who bear fruit. And we can't do this on our own. We need your Holy Spirit, it's spiritual good fruit made by you for you through the Holy Spirit and you've given us the tools and the methods to grow but even then Lord we're just so weak we're so distracted and we're so busy sometimes that it's just so easy to get our eyes off what we're supposed to be about God you gotta do something in our hearts help us love you more help us desire you more speak to every soul here what they need to hear today Lord and if anybody here has not cried out to the living God, has not cried out to Jesus to save them from their sins has not actually come to Christ I pray you would do what you have to do to save their souls Lord, because their temporary suffering pales in comparison to the eternal suffering they will face from rejecting the good news that Jesus died for their sins and rose again Speak to your people now, Lord. Speak to us in ways that only you can do. Amen.